You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboos and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. Thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court and today I'll be interviewing Dr. David Lay. David Lay is a licensed psychologist and internationally recognized expert on issues related to sexuality, pornography, and mental health. He has served as an expert consultant for numerous media outlets, appearing with Anderson Cooper, Katie Couric, Dr. Phil, Tom Ashbrook, and Dan Savage. David is a clinical psychologist and author known for his critical stance regarding sex addiction and pornography. His first book, Insatiable Wives, won a silver medal in the Forward Magazine book of, of, book of the year in 2009. His book, Myth of Sex Addiction, is widely regarded as a strong argument against the concept. He also has another book, Ethical Porn for Dicks, which is a funny title, but a very well-researched and easy-read book about ethical porn. He has been. Hey, you know, there's a lot of guys named Richard out there that watch porn. The book's for them, man. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's the spirit of the book, isn't it? All right. That's well, right. Why don't we start, David? I'm so glad to have you. You know, I'm, um, we have a history. Well, for me, my end of the history was adversarial with you at first because I was a sex addiction therapist and then you helped me come out of that whole model. And, um, yeah, can you talk about? Yeah. He- yeah, you know, I mean, uh, honestly, Joe, I mean, I, I have I have such tremendous respect and admiration for you. I'll never forget, I was, um, the first time you and I ever had like a real sort of open kind of heart-to-heart discussion um, was, I don't want to, maybe five or six years ago, I was driving back from Colorado, I live in Albuquerque, and I was driving back from Colorado, and I had just picked up a new puppy from a rescue in Colorado that I was bringing home. And somehow you and I ended up having uh, like a 45 minute or an hour conversation as I was driving. And I got to know you, you got to know me, we started talking about kind of some of our shared views and concerns about this sex addiction model. And, um, you know, and, and watching your career since I mean, watching that video you did recently about you know how you ran into that former sex addiction patient and and apologized to him. I, it brought tears to my eyes. I mean, it's really an extraordinary transformation. Thank you, and that was really because of your work. And you know, even though I I didn't like what you were saying, um, and I, I didn't agree with it, it it went in right. It stayed in me because I there was a part of me that knew that I was uh, in the wrong model and it was not helpful. And I believed your I believed you, but I didn't want to believe you. I'm sure you get a lot of that. Uh, yeah, you know, a bit. I mean, it, 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 what is interesting is that, um, you know, because I, as I've approached this, I mean, when I, when I first started writing against the kind of concept of sex addiction, I, you know, I went at it in a very, you know, academic kind of scholarly way. And, and I was surprised when I got such, you know, vitriolic backlash, when I got such anger, when I started getting death threats, when I was getting, you know, threats of lawsuit from, from sex addiction therapists and such, just because I was, you know, challenging the validity of the model. And I didn't realize just how deeply, um, embedded the model was in their identity. And uh, as I realized that, I realized I had to kind of shift some of my approach. And, and so I started, you know, 
I started telling more narratives. I started telling more stories and examples of patients that I'd worked with who identified as sex addicts, but the issue wasn't sex addiction. The issue wasn't even sex. It was it was these other issues that were that were going unexamined, and and is that as we as we as we uncovered and addressed those issues, you know, uh, sexual self control um, increased, and and then I also started you know being more of a person myself i started i started you know engaging more identifying me as you know as as the vehicle by which this this dialogue was was kind of happening and and it started changing people like you that had been within the industry that had you know had some reservations and questions started seeing me not as the 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 devil um but as just a guy who they could talk to and now I have all of these amazing friends like you, um, Josh Grubb, Sam Perry, Tony Stiker, um, so many of these people who were in the sex addiction industry and and have now left um, because they realized that, uh, like you, that that the model was about shame um, around sexuality and that we didn't we didn't have to feel that shame. Right. You know, listening to you say all this, now I understand because I have watched you on other listservs and you are very academic and you, you talk with your peers academically and you're battling ideas and talking about ideas and that was not going to happen with the sex addiction model. It's too deeply personal. Most of the therapists, and I was one of them, where it's not just what we do for a living, it's who we are. And so that's probably right. why you had to change because it was personal on the other end. And without you being personal, it 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 looked – it didn't it wasn't um getting the message wasn't getting through right yeah and you know i, I, I it, while i was never you know as a person um you know diagnosed as a sex addict i was never even you know historically accused of being a sex addict at least until i started saying that sex addiction was was not a good model or a valid model i mean since you know um it, it is Simply by questioning the validity of the concept of sex addiction qualifies you automatically as a sex addict. You know, I am a sex addict in denial just because I, I disbelieve that this is a good, useful clinical model. But, but looking back, you know, historically, it would have been easy at, at, at many points in my life to, to label me as a sex addict. Um, and in a lot of ways, I was just lucky that I never ended up in that kind of situation. But as I, as I realized that, um, and also as I realized how much fear was driving this stuff, as I realized, you know, you know, hearing, hearing people like you talk and, and patients that I've worked with who, you know, during the 1980s, as the AIDS crisis was hitting and they were just, terrified that the things they wanted to do sexually could could result in you know aids and death for them and their loved ones um and the idea that sex was an addiction you know kind of gave a little bit of an answer and at least it gave you this kind of group that you could go to and talk to about how you were trying to control your sexuality I get where that fear and shame about your sexual desires um, could be so painful and that the idea of sex, sex addiction, 
um, at least gave a little bit of an answer. But I, I, I think the the remarkable thing now is that we we've grown beyond. And the research that we've gotten just in the past five or six years uh, is extraordinary now in really helping us to understand those things that underlie, you know, that subjective feeling of of sexual self-control difficulties. You know, the the feeling that I I don't know if I can control these sexual desires and I'm afraid of what happens if I don't. Yes. Um, that... We're understanding that more, and I think the more we understand it, the more we can actually help the people who are suffering rather than just telling them, oh, you need to not do that. So let me ask you something, though. So uh, listeners are going to be um, uh, hearing this and going, well, if it's not sex addiction, then what the hell is it? You know, and uh, it, I think that that is – too simplistic a question because everybody, you know, and, 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 and I end up in these debates. People are like, well, you know, if you don't want to call it sex addiction, then call it, you know, compulsive sexual behavior or call it impulsive sexual behavior or call it, call it hypersexuality. But the thing is that this is a heterogeneous issue and that, you know, we are lumping way too many things under the single label. So, for instance, you know, there are, um, you know, people who view themselves as sex addicts or identify as compulsive sexual behavior because they watch porn one time a month. Mm -hmm. But because they watch porn one time a month and they think that that is immoral and bad – they identify that as compulsive. Now, compare that to the person who, you know, loses their job because they, you know, they they uh, get caught looking at porn at work, you know, for two or three hours every day. Um, is that the same thing? Is that the same issue? And then, and then, you know, the thing is, um, the other people who are under that label are the people who, you know, they got caught cheating on their wife once or twice. Um, in the past 10 years, and they identify themselves as being addicted to sex or compulsive. And we, we, have to, we have to recognize that in order for us to help people with these issues, we have to be more precise. We have to be more individualized. We have to recognize better what the complexity is in these issues. Unfortunately, you know, when we look for one label, when we look for one term, we're we're trying to make this simple and we're trying to explain it with one little thing. But it doesn't work that way. Sexuality is the most complicated, complex, overdetermined and multiply influenced human behavior that exists. We're not going to find a single label. Oh my god, you know, the police are coming for me. See, I told you I'd get in trouble. Um, the uh, uh, fire department's right down the street in my office, so they drive by. Um, we're not going to find any one single label that explains this, and we shouldn't. Right. Because we have to treat each of these issues radically differently. You know, we should not be trying to treat, you know, uh, a movie star who gets caught, you know, um, sleeping with a bunch of groupies. We shouldn't be treating him or her the same as that person who is, you know, watching pornography and masturbating because it's the only way they can deal with their anxiety issues. These are two different issues with different causes, and effective treatment has to respond to those issues more specifically. One of the things I say often is that 
You know, if I walk into my doctor's office and I'm sneezing, my doctor doesn't say, David, you got a sneezing addiction. You need to cut that crap out. <laughs> Instead, my doctor tries to figure out, you know, do you have, do I have allergies? Do I have a bacterial infection? Do I have a virus? You know, or do I even have that genetic thing that some people sneeze when they walk into bright sunlight? We have to treat each of these differently. And in some cases, because it is a normal, healthy behavior, we shouldn't even be treating it. Because if we try and treat it, we might make it worse or cause a problem that didn't exist. These are critically important questions that when it comes to sex, we have to be asking. Right. So when you say treating it, treating it with the sexual addiction model, right? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I think that the sex addiction model, I think, is the, you know, the, the, the model that is most well known. But, you know, um, uh, for instance, you know, um, a, a man comes to me and, you know, uh, he is struggling in his relationship because, um, you know, he's wanting to be sexual with other men and uh, gets caught looking at porn at work and, you know, it's gay porn. And I ask him, well, why are you watching gay porn at work, dude? And he says, well, yeah, I can't watch it at home. And and the issue is this guy is bisexual, but his wife and their heterosexual relationship and their pastor, you know, can't accept that he is bisexual. And so they try to make that bisexuality or those bisexual desires go away. Um, this is a normal normative and healthy aspect of his sexuality that we are treating. And it doesn't matter how we treat it. It's like, you know, it's like taking a person who has a healthy limb and amputating it. Mm -hmm. um, we, we should not be using medicine to treat or suppress healthy behaviors. Now, does that couple need help? Sure they do. Does that guy need help to better understand you know, his sexual desires? Absolutely. Um, you know, there's this remarkable research just recently from Australia that showed that um, bisexuals uh, are at greater risk for mental health issues and suicide when they have internalized homophobia and when they are married to a heterosexual. Mm. Because both of those things mean that this normal, healthy aspect of their sexuality is being shamed and suppressed and identified as something that must be fought. And that causes pain. So, you know, Doug Barn Harvey and Michael Vigorito talk about this, you know, very effectively. And, you know, the, the, we have to start identifying, you know, what is healthy sexuality. And when something is healthy, even if it is causing problems, we shouldn't be medically treating it. Now, there can be assistance that we can offer to help that, for instance, to help that bisexual person learn how to accept those issues in themselves and maybe negotiate and communicate them to their partner, which is a wonderful issue to work through, but it's not a freaking illness and it's not, you know, it's not a disease. Right. I agree. I was, I think with my sex addiction hat on, because when I was a sex addiction therapist, what we, what I was trained to believe and know is that there are drivers to the sex addiction, you know, untreated sexual trauma, um, bipolar disorder, um, you know, depression, anxiety. Um, actually, I remember there was a Carnes, um, uh, stat that said, um, 97 
97% of uh, people who are sex addicts um, have been sexually abused. And what I used to say then, which helped me, which started re- th- me rethinking everything is maybe they're just sexually abused and that's what we're treating. You treat that. Maybe they're just um, somebody that has unco- their shame around their sexual sexuality. You just treat that. Instead of moving to another label, a pathologizing label, mm-hmm. can you just treat what it really is? That seems to be what the intervention should be. Yeah, you know, I mean, the research, uh, you know, Carnes's research, I'm sorry, is 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 extremely poor. I mean, it is it's never been peer reviewed. It's never been published. It's never been, you know, the data has never been available for other scientists to see. And the the reality is that what he was publishing and calling research was was just um, in a sample bias. It was the people that came to him and said, I'm a sex addict. You know, I um, I, I want this treatment. Actually, his first book um i don't know if, i don't know if i've ever told you this story his first book um you know out of the shadows he tells the story of this guy who was a um washington dc department of education bureaucrat and the guy got caught um arranging kind of prostitution sort of um uh, experiences for a woman that he was having an affair with and um the this got this got publicized and it led to this huge scandal the guy um this was very early 1980s the guy went to Johns Hopkins and got diagnosed as a sex addict and actually got put on female hormones um to you know to essentially chemically castrate him and suppress his sexuality and he you know Carnes described this guy as the quintessential sex addict well when I wrote my book, I actually found that guy. I actually tracked him mm. down and said, you know, hey, tell me, tell me about your life. Tell me about what happened. You know, you said back in the 1980s that your life was over, your life was ruined by sexuality, that, you know, we should all be, we should all recognize. And he said, he said some interesting stuff. He said actually that he had sued Carnes for using his story um, uh, inappropriately without his permission. Um, he also said that, uh, you know, within just, a, within just a year, the guy's career was back on track. He said that he, he realized he was never actually addicted to sex, but that he was struggling to understand and take responsibility for his sexual desires. And he said, you know, I made mistakes and unfortunately, the the sex addiction label prevented me at the time from, you know, taking responsibility and acknowledging those mistakes. But he said, now I've learned a lot more about my sexuality and, and I can look back and I can understand and have compassion for the mistakes I made, which, you know, is just so powerful and so different. Wow, and, wow, and wow. And unfortunately... You know the the sex addiction kind of model. It, it it's based on confirmation bias and and people seeing seeing kind of what they want to see. Um, and unfortunately, Carnes you know Carnes really does that. Now, good research now shows that you know ninety percent of people who self-identify as sex addicts um, you know have a major mental health issue, typically depression or anxiety, and that they are using depression, um, they're using sex, masturbation, porn as a way to cope with negative feelings and to feel better and which means that what those people need is help coping with those negative feelings but unfortunately if we tell them stop watching porn or or stop having sex without replacing the you know without helping them develop other coping strategies 
then we're just we're just making the problem worse. We're increasing their self hatred and their shame of sexuality. Um, and, and that's actually again what the research shows. You know, Josh Grubbs is a, a researcher at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, and he has some some really remarkable research showing that people who self identify as being addicted to porn or sex they don't actually watch more porn or have more sex than anybody else, but they feel worse about the sex they do. And what's interesting is that as they self-identify as addicted to porn or sex, um, they they experience higher levels of depression and anxiety over time, that that self-label actually makes it worse because they end up hating themselves. You know, when they find themselves checking out, you know, an attractive person who walks by instead of kind of saying, oh, you know, that person's cute. It, it is normal and healthy for me to have these sexual desires and thoughts. Instead, they they say to themselves, oh, there's my addiction. Yes. It's out of control. Yeah. I'm relapsing. And and they hate themselves. And, you know, the, the research is clear. The more you fight these internal thoughts, the more you the more you try to make thoughts of sex go away, the stronger they get. So unfortunately, I, I, I am concerned that, in fact, the the, the sex addiction and porn addiction kind of treatment model um, very likely made things worse and created the very problem that it thought it was treating. I totally agree. And when I was a sex addiction therapist, what we were trained to believe and know is that sex addiction isn't about sex. Um, it's about something else. And I can't disagree with that. It's not, uh, sometimes it's about sex, but most times it has other drivers, like you said, depression, anxiety, other, uh, untreated traumas. But then the recovery was also not <laughs> about sex. And that was problematic yeah. because how do you, you know, they, it's like trauma therapists will say, well, your natural sexuality will surface once the trauma heal, heals. It's such bullshit. You can't, it doesn't happen like that. You have to teach yourself how and be taught mm -hmm. what healthy sexuality is for you. And that's not what the model does. Well, you know, and, and it's such a, it's such a bait and switch. I mean, it's such a, you know, as they say, you know, and, and, you know, God, many of them, many of them say exactly what you just said. Well, you know, sex addiction isn't about sex. Mm -hmm. It's about these other issues. Okay, then live and treat in that way. But they say that, and then what do they do? They turn around and treat the sex. Yes. They are so hyper-focused on, you know, when the patient comes in, they don't ask them, you know, so how are you doing on your depression? They ask them, have you relapsed? <laughs> you know, have you, had, have you had the kind of sex that you're not supposed to have? Well, if it's not about the sex, then let's fucking stop talking about it. Yes. Right. And pathologizing it. And, and what Doug Brown Harvey calls giving people erotic-ectomies, right? Trying to take it away. Yes. Like you said, losing a limb. Like, it's nothing to lose. It's how do you negotiate yeah. and have a better relationship with your erotic self? And, you know, one of the things I will say, you know, I noticed a post that you just made a little while ago today about, you know, you're, you're you know, taking better care of your beard and wearing, <laughs> you know, the clothes you're wearing. And, and I've noticed over the, over the time I've known you, I've noticed you, you know, getting more comfortable in your masculinity. And, um, and I think, I think it's beautiful. I think it's so powerful because the sex addiction model is really it, deeply rooted in this rejection of many aspects of male sexuality, um, you know, identifying masturbation, identifying casual sex, identifying, you know, sex for recreation, all of the things that are identified as being addictive sexuality just so happen to be aspects of, the, of sexuality that are more common in men. Yes. And, and I think that, you know, 
what we what we need is more men who are standing up as healthy role models for what healthy masculine sexuality looks like and that doesn't necessarily mean that they are you know you know erotically neutral um you know but we have to we have to find a way where men are allowed to be sexual in this self-determined way and you know will smith is one of the guys i look at who you know um he and his wife you know have 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 rejected the idea of monogamy in their relationship and they are working through how how they negotiated that in their relationship and you know so that if he gets caught you know having sex with another woman well he's not cheating they worked it out he's not going to call himself a sex addict right right because because it's been negotiated it like i don't know if you remember um Oh gosh, um, who was the lead singer of Wham? Um, oh, George, George Michael. Was that George Michael? Mm-hmm. Okay, so George Michael. I don't know if you remember this. George Michael, um, before he came out as gay, he got caught having bathroom sex yep. in I want to say New York. Yeah, and he, I, um, he was ashamed, and he identified as being addicted to sex, and he went to sex addiction treatment. But then over the next few years, he came out as gay, and then I want to say five or six years later, he got caught again having bathroom sex in uh, England. But this time, instead of being ashamed and identifying as sex addict, he pushed back at the reporters and journalists and people that were attacking him, and he said, look – this kind of sexual behavior is part of gay culture. I am not doing anything unhealthy. You guys can just fuck off. I love, love, love that. We, we have to stop. We could talk so much more, but I love that you ended with that because that's such an important uh, transformation. And by the way, thank you for noticing my posts because I do, I come from a misandrous family that didn't allow me to be masculine. And I think the sex addiction model also doesn't allow men to be masculine. So that was a great uh, parallel. Before we uh, go though, I, I want to wrap. Oh, thank you. I want to wrap up and, and ask you whatever you'd like to promote um, the th- things that you're doing now before we stop. What's what are you doing? Oh, you know, God, I mean, the list goes on. But, you know, if, if folks are interested in finding me or hearing stuff I'm doing, follow me on Twitter at Dr. David Lay. Last name is L-E-Y. Dr. David Lay at um, uh, Twitter, L-A-L-E-Y. I like what you said, that it was destined for you to become a sex therapist because your last name is Lay. (laughs) (laughs) I love that line. Yeah, yeah. I I had no options. I could be a sex doctor or a politician involved in a sex scandal, but Anthony (laughs) Weiner holds the title. (laughs) Thank you so much, David, for coming on the show. (laughs) Thank you. Always. Take care, Joe. Thanks for doing it. Good luck to you. All right. Thank you so much. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court, and you can find me on joecourt.com. That's J-O-E-K-O-R-T dot com. See you next time.